Hey, good morning, guys. Hope you're all doing okay. It's been a really long week. Um, for me, this was the biggest storm I've ever been through. Anybody else been through this biggest one? You guys are a bunch of homers like, no, this is nothing. Uh, for me, it's biggest one, so made it through, but I'll tell you what, I never have been more proud of the community and more thankful for the community I live in than through this storm to see everybody come together. It's been absolutely amazing. Um, like Brandon said, he's, he's off studying, getting ready for next year's sermon series, so I'm going to start a, a new series. It's actually going to take us two weeks. We just finished a four-week series on detours, and now we're going to do a two-week series on Clash of Cultures. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 is that when you have different cultures come together that have differing values, differing beliefs, and different priorities, there's going to be a clash between them. And that clash typically is going to result in one of two ways. One of them is when you're at a clash, you, you just kind of leave. You know, you kind of move on. Maybe kind of like a detour like Brandon was talking about. You take it from the hand of God that you're just not going to resolve this clash. So it's time for you to go someplace else or do something different. So that's one outcome. A second outcome is you just go head on, maybe you're in the right, but you go head on and someone's going to leave hurt and someone's going to leave injured. And so Paul is right in the middle of this. We're going to see both outcomes in this story here, but, but he's in the middle of, of a clash of cultures that we, we have even today. It really three different cultures that tend to collide together. And one of those cultures, one of the groups was, was those who were for Jesus. One of those groups were those that were against Jesus. And there was one group that was trying to use the name of Jesus to manipulate others. And so he's really in this, this clash of these three different groups of people. And so my prayer, my hope, is over the next two weeks, uh, we just allow God to speak to us in ways, maybe reveal some things uh, in our lives to kind of show us that, man, we, we might claim we're, we're part of this culture here, but we might be flirting with a different culture. Uh, and that leads to my public service announcement for you all. Uh, see, Brandon wanted me to share with you guys uh, that while this week I'm kind of introducing the subject by we're going to talk about some of the ramifications of when you have a clash of cultures, uh, next week he's going to get really, really personal with us. Uh, what he's going to do is he's going to take this clash of cultures and he's going to look at very practical ways that we as Christians in this community even are flirting with the wrong culture. So here's your warning. If you're here today and you're really defensive about the things you're doing that you know is wrong, you're going to hate next week. You're not going to enjoy it one bit. Because again, we're going to get really, really personal. So today, but I get to set it up. And, and, and today we're looking at verses 8 through 20 in, in the book of Acts chapter 19. And uh, I would argue that this is one of the most fun set of verses in all of Scripture. And, and the reason why is because it has it all. It has people getting saved. It has people that are in conflict with each other. It has miracles. It has demons. It has fist fights, And it has nudity. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, if you think God's word is boring, then you're not reading it. Uh, so in order to kind of jump in, we're just going to go ahead and go. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. We're going to look at this, this clash of cultures that Paul encountered, what was going on at this time. And it says this, if you have your Bible, you can read along, you can read along the side screens as well. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of, some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. 
Now, now the verses leading up to these tell us that, that Paul is in Ephesus, okay? And then these verses pick up and say, while he's in Ephesus, he spent three months in the synagogue speaking to the Jews. But what's really interesting is throughout Scripture, when it talks about Paul or any other believers, when they're talking about the synagogue, it, it normally says that they were preaching or they were teaching in the synagogue. But here, I don't know if you caught it, it, it says that Paul was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So yes, he was teaching, yes, he was preaching, but the writer of Acts wants to make sure we understood that he was arguing persuasively for the ways of God. And so we got to sit there and say, well, why, why do you have to argue persuasively? And this is why, again, go back, he was in Ephesus. So Ephesus at this time was, was completely unreached at, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul came in, and he's talking to these Jews who, who claim to follow God, the God of the Old Testament, and claim to believe in God, and yet they were extremely arrogant to the point that they felt like they were better than God because it was a really wealthy province. So they had money, and so their arrogance is running rampant, and they, they believe in God, but they think they're better than God. And one of the evidence that they thought they were better than God is because they believed that they could pick and choose who God really is. So they would take a little bit of this God and a little bit of that God. They would, they would take a little bit of the one true God and they would mix it with, with another God. Maybe it's an idol or, or a different God in that region. Because here's the deal with the people in Ephesus. They said they loved God, but man, they also loved the supernatural. It was a community that was highly superstitious. They believed in miracles and, and they believed in, 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 in demons being, or people being possessed by demons, which is real. And they loved exorcisms and they loved all these different things. So what they would do is they would take their belief in God and they would mix it with, with the belief in some other God. One of them was Artemis in the area. There was actually a temple built to him. And they would make a lot of money making these false idols to this God of Artemis. And, and they loved Artemis because Artemis and the belief in Artemis, they would push miracles. and They would, they would push all these different things, which is kind of the fantastical. And so they would, they would combine them together. And so Paul is now talking to these people who say, oh yeah, we're God followers. But yet, in their arrogance, they believe they can define who God is. They're not letting the Old Testament define who God is. They're saying, they're saying oh no, God's a mixture of all things. He's a, a mixture of the God of the, of the Old Testament, but it's also a mixture of these different false gods that, you know, that, that can do some amazing things. They can perform miracles and superstitions. The list goes on and on and on. And, and what's wild is uh, Ephesus is a lot like the Gulf Coast. Because I, I think we could talk about Ephesus and we could talk about this tendency to, to mix God with the supernatural and superstition and miracles and all these different things. And we could talk about that in maybe New York or, or Boston and they might kind of understand it, but we really get it, right? Because we're in the epicenter of people that are doing exactly that. We're in the epicenter of people who sit there and say, hey man, I follow God, but man, I also believe in magic. I believe in dark magic. I believe in this. I believe in that. I believe in superstition. The list goes on and on and on. In fact, it's had ramifications even in my life. A few months ago, and as I tell the story, those of you guys that are from the area and, and, and grew up here, you're going to pick up a lot faster than I am. I'm just that dumb. Uh, a few months ago, I decided I was going to go buy a, a truck. And if you know me, I do a ton of research with stuff. I take forever. Uh, I base it on, hey, what, what's the, what can I get off the vehicle? How much is it really worth? Invoice list goes on and on and on. So I'm doing a ton of research. And, and, and I'm also one of those guys that I just hate debt. I just don't. Other than my house, if I can't write a check for it, I don't want it. it. It's amazing how much money you can save when you don't have debt. 
And so I found a, a vehicle, and they were giving me a great price. And I knew it was a great price, but it was still a little bit more than I was willing to pay. So I just kept looking, and I found the exact truck I wanted in New Orleans. And I reached out to the guy, and I was kind of negotiating with him on the phone, and he gave me the same deal that this other guy was going to give me. And it was a great deal, but it wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. Uh, so being a good salesman, you know how they are. Uh, you know, we love you guys. Uh, they're trying to build rapport with me, and they're asking about my family and my kids. And, and then he says, so what do you do for a living? Now, i got to confess something. I hate it when people ask me that question. Uh, I am very proud of my calling. I'm very proud of being a pastor. But it is really awkward when people don't know me personally, and they just know my job, because they act really, really weird. I mean, I've been at football games and soccer games, and people will apologize to me because they're cussing, and I don't even know who the dude is. Uh, but it's really what I shared, you know, I'm a pastor. At what church? I'm a mosaic. And he was like, oh, I've heard of the church. I'm like, no, you haven't. But anyways, that sounds great. And uh, 45 minutes later, he contacts me. And um, he took the price that he was going to give me, and he discounted it by thousands of dollars. And um, I looked at my son, and I said, uh, get in the car. I looked at my wife and said, there's no way they're going to sell me this vehicle for this amount of money. We drive to New Orleans. We get there, get to the salesperson. Look at the truck. It's everything that I wanted. It's exactly what was online. I'm checking the VIN number for all those guys. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, everything's there. I, I signed the papers with the, with the salesman. But then in order to close the deal, you have to go to the finance department. So I go to the finance department, and I told my son, I said, this guy's going to try to upsell me on this, that, and the other thing. Just get ready. And, and I'm in there. And while we're there, he's just filling all the documentation, printing them all off. And he's talking about, Hey, you know, so you're a pastor. Yeah, you know, I come from a family of pastors. I'm like, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, uh, my dad's involved in the Catholic Church, and my grandmother on the other side, she was a voodoo pri uh, priestess. He says, so we go and listen to my dad at Mass, then we go listen to my grandmother, who's this voodoo priestess. And I'm like, and my son's sitting there, he's like, blowing his mind. And so I'm just like, okay, let's get going. I want to sign these papers because I just do not think this is possible. He gets done. I sign the papers, and, and I get up. I shake his hand. My son shakes his hand. I'm starting to walk towards the door, and I look back at the guy, and I said, man, don't take this the wrong way. I said, but, man, you are the worst salesman in the world. I mean, I would have thought you'd try to give me, like, extended warranty or, like, you know, wheel and rim coverage and all these different things. And uh, the gentleman said, sit down for a second. So we sat down, and he said, um, he says, when you told the salesperson that you were a pastor, our GM wanted to make sure we did everything we can to get you in that vehicle and do everything we could not to take advantage of you. He says, so I'm not selling you this stuff because it's not worth it. He says, because we believe, he says, again, this is, this is Catholic voodoo country. We believe that if you take care of people of the cloth, then God will take care of you. And because we are highly superstitious, we felt that if we lost the sale and didn't do everything we possibly could, then God was going to spite us. Now, in my flesh, I'm hearing this, and I'm looking at my son, and I'm like, dude, let's grab the keys and drive away like we stole the thing. And, and honestly, that's exactly what I did. But here's the problem, and, and this is honestly the problem. Um, it was, I, I should be ashamed to admit this, this is probably about 24 hours later. It, it finally just, it, it, I caught on that, you know what? I did everything that I should have done. I, I know I had already signed the documents. I knew that I, I didn't realize what was going on. But man, I took advantage because of my office and because of their superstition to benefit myself. And guess what? I didn't feel very good about that. 
you know, what I should have done is I probably should have called, I don't know if I would have done this, but I should have, like called every salesperson and every manager and got all two dozen of them together, and I should have argued persuasively for the ways of God, and I should have said, hey, you guys are saving money from me because you believe that this false God is going to honor you, but that's not true. And, and if I would have done that, maybe I would have experienced what Paul experienced in Ephesus, where it says that some became followers of Jesus Christ, they became believers, and maybe I would experience the opposite, too, is it says that some became obstinate and they turned against Paul's teaching and they maligned the message concerning Jesus Christ. See, this is what, what Paul did when he got into this clash. He made the right decision. I took advantage of it. Again, I'm not proud of that. It didn't even dawn on me for 24 hours later. That's how not bright I am. But what, what Paul did is he took this, these people that are trying to discredit and malign the message, and he says, you know what, maybe this is just God's way of putting me on a detour. Maybe he has a, he has a different plan for me. And, and so what he did is, is just really just ingenious. I mean, it's really amazing. He sat there and said, okay, if you guys are going to push back against me, if you're going to malign the message of Jesus Christ, I'm going to take the new believers that are called disciples in these verses, and I'm going to go down the street, and I'm going to go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And the reason why this was ingenious is because he was at the synagogue where only Jews could go into. And then he went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which was a public setting, and now both Jews and Greeks could be there. And scripture tells us that, that his ministry there was so successful, God moved in such an amazing way in two years. In two years, it says that all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it was really ingenious. He sat there and says, man, there's this clash of cultures. And I could fight against them, or I could sit there and say, you know what, maybe this is God's way of making me move to a new detour. And by going to a new place, which I'm sure he did not want to do, but by going there, he opened up the opportunity for more people to hear about the gospel to the point that the whole province of Asia heard about the message. Now, for some of you guys in this room, that, that, this really resonates with you. I mean, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been at a point in your life where you're at this clash and they're actively against the faith that you believe in. And so you're sitting there saying, man, what do I do? And you're scared to death and you leave your job or maybe you leave your friend group and you sit there and say, I'm going to allow God to use this in my life. And you go someplace else and your testimony is Paul's testimony. By doing that, by taking that act of obedience, you're now in a place where you sit there and say, man, I'm, I'm more fruitful in my ministry, I'm more happy, my family's better off for it because I allowed the detour to affect where I was at. Some of you guys, this resonates with you because you're struggling with that decision right now. Like I said, you're, you're, you're at work, uh, you're at a job, or, or maybe you have a, a group of friends, and they just don't have objections about your faith. They are actively against what you believe in. And so here's the deal. There is a big difference between persevering and pushing through with friends and a workplace that has objections about your faith or doesn't believe what you believe. It is something completely different to stay in that situation or stay in that friend group when they are actively maligning your belief in Jesus Christ. If that's the case, you need to be like Paul, and it's time to move on and go to a new detour. We're told that not only did everybody in the province of Asia hear about this, uh, God did some amazing things uh, through Paul. In verse 11 and 12, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now, I, we're going to keep that up for a second. Uh, just notice, it says God did extraordinary things. So here's the deal. God 
was the activator and the initiator of these miracles. But, but God, in his wisdom, because they're in a region that they just love the miraculous, they, they love all this stuff, so God says, hey, let me validate Paul's message. Let me do some things that are absolutely extraordinary. And the writer of Acts wants to make sure that we understand what Paul did in order to make these miracles happen. You catch what he did? He sweat. That's what he did. It, it, it says that, that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. An apron was used to wipe the sweat off somebody's body. The handkerchief was used to wipe the sweat off somebody's head. So God, in his wisdom, says, hey, Paul, here's what I need you to do. I need you to allow people to, to touch your sweat rags, and I need you to let people come to you, and you touch their sweat rags, and they're going to literally go to these people who are demon-possessed, and they're going to say, hey, dude, touch this sweat rag. And like, okay. And they touch the sweat rag, and the demon leaves. They're going to go to the sick, and they're going to say, hey, dude, I've had this apron around me. Man, I've sweat for days, but Paul touched it. I need you to touch this. And the sick person's like, I think that's going to make things worse. But they touch it, and all of a sudden, they're no longer sick. And, and, and that's, just, that, that's just the act of God. That's something that only God can do, even in the absurd of what God chose to use in order to show his power. But unfortunately, at that time, and, and, and like today, there are always people that see God's work and they see God's power and they see God's movement and they try to use it to manipulate other people. And that's exactly what happens in verse 13. Uh, we're told in the previous verse, like I said, that, that people are hearing the gospel. They're hearing Paul's preach about Jesus Christ. Miracles are happening through the sweat rags. And in verse 13, it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So here's the deal. These, these men, because they're in a region that loves magic, they're in, a, they're, in a, they're in a region that loves to see people drive out demons, they're in a region that can get paid very, very well for doing these, these miracles. They sat there and said, hey man, if Paul can use the name of Jesus, and if it's working for him, you know, we're going to use that as well. See, these men, they were, they were master manipulators. And I want you to catch this. What they did is they would take the tips and the tricks of Christianity to benefit themselves. I'm going to share something that some of you guys might not agree with, but I don't care, I'm still right. I believe that one of the biggest tragedies that happen amongst the Christian church today is we have people within the church, not just Mosaic, every church, that is trying to use the tips and the tricks of Christianity to benefit themselves. I believe there's people in this room that either do not know Jesus or they do know Jesus, and somewhere along the line, the draw to try to make, uh, to, to come to church and to serve and to study God's word, and the, the draw to try to be more like Jesus has been replaced with the desire for people to think that we are more like Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we've either neither, never been for Jesus, or maybe, like I said, we just start to drift that way, but all of a sudden, we start using the Christian walk. We say, hey, man, this can benefit me. And maybe you're sitting here right now, and you're saying, man, no, that's not me. That's not me. And it might not be you. But I have a really good test for you to, to determine whether it is. I have a good test for you concerning whether or not you're striving to be more like Jesus when you come into this place, when you study God's word and you serve, or whether you're trying to come into this place because you just want to look a lot more like Jesus. And the test is this, it's consistency. 
See, is the same Jesus that you are, the same follower of Christ that you are right here, when you come here, the same Jesus when you leave here? Moms and dads, here's my question for you. Do your children, the Jesus that they see in you when you walk in this place, is that consistent with the same Jesus they see in you when you walk in your home? Young people, the words and the, and, and the things that you say about other people and the words that you say in your vocabulary in this place, is it consistent with the words that you say and the things you say about other people on social media or when you're away from this place? Young adults, is the image that you're trying to portray right now consistent with the image you portrayed last night? See, here's the deal. If any of us can answer no to that question, I believe, honestly, a lot of us struggle with this at times. It's the drift. If we can answer no to those, and the fact of the matter is, if there's no consistency in our life, then we're here for one of two reasons. We're either hopefully trying to draw closer to Christ and trying to overcome that, or using the tips and tricks of Christianity to benefit ourselves. And we believe that by running in Christian circles, it's going to be better for us. We believe that by using the tips and tricks and running in Christian circles, it's going to help us make that connection with that businessman we've always wanted to have. Or we believe that by, by looking Christ-like that we will attain more customers because we've got a really good group of 2,000 plus people that we can go to. Or, or we believe that if we can look Christ-like, we can fool people into thinking that we're emotionally and spiritually healthy when in fact we're just absolute train wrecks. Or, or we believe that, that we could come here and, and we could be teenagers and we can look like Christ to, to everybody around us because we believe that if we do that, then our parents will be fooled into thinking we're being responsible when they're not around us. Or we come here because we're single, and we believe that if we can just use the tips and tricks of Christianity, we can find that girl or that guy that we've always wanted. Because we believe that if I can look like Christ, and that girl's going to start dating me, when in fact you don't care about her, you're just a predator. See, here's the deal. I, I really believe this, guys. I believe one of the biggest struggles with Christendom right now, and you guys have seen it, you guys have watched the awards, and oh, I just want to thank God. I believe one of the biggest struggles we face right now is people who are using God for their own gain. It's the same problem that Ephesus had, and it's the same problem that we have. But here's the deal. If that's you, that's me, and if we think we're going to get away with it, we're not going to get away with it for long. We see what happens to these people who are doing that in the following verses, verse 14 through 16. It says, seven sons of Sceva, who were, uh, uh, who was a, uh, I'm sorry, Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So going back, he just talked about there's this, there were these Jews that were her walking around. They said, hey, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. There's a group of Jews doing this. But there were specifically seven brothers. And, and for all of history, for all of eternity, we know exactly what family they're a part of. They're, they're the sons of Sceva, just so like we don't ever get confused with which brothers they are. We all know. And so they're doing this. But then one day, man, they messed with the wrong demon. One day they walked up to that demon and says, hey, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. We're told in Scripture that the demon looked at him. He says this. He says, Jesus I know. And Paul, I know about, but who are you? Now, I've never been face-to-face -face with a demon. I don't know if, like, you know, because this guy's demon-possessed, I don't know if his eyes are glowing. I mean, I saw some pretty crazy stuff last night for Halloween, but I, I don't know. 
I don't know if his voice changed. I don't know, but, but I could only imagine the amount of fear that overcame these men. When they're like, in the name of Jesus, came out. And the demon's like, hey, I know who Jesus is. I, I know he's the son of God. And if he was here right now and he said something, I would run. And I know this Paul dude. I know the fact that God's using him in amazing ways. But I have absolutely no idea who you are. Uh, imagine what they thought when they're looking at this demon. This demon's looking at them. And the demon's saying, here's the deal, guys. I know your game. I know that you're trying to manipulate God for your own gain, and I know that you think you're going to be able to exercise authority over me despite the fact you're as spiritually bankrupt as I am. But that's not going to work. And the amount of fear that these seven men felt when this demon is literally talking back to them, I can just imagine like the heat, uh, if they have hair, it's standing up and they're freaking out, but that paled into comparison to what's just about to happen. And we just read it, we'll read it again, verse 16. It says, Then the man who had the evil spirit, jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, um, I've been in a few fights in my day, honestly a lot more than I'm, I'm comfortable admitting to. I've won some and I've lost some. I've made somebody bleed and I've left bleeding. But at no time did I ever even think it was a possibility that one of us would leave naked. At no time before a fight, when I'm having like that internal discussion in my head to pump myself up, that I think, dude, by the time I'm done with this guy, he's going to be stripped down. At no time have I been hit so hard that I'm like, dude, where'd my pants go? This is, this is never, I didn't even know this was possible. And these are seven men against one man. But this demon-possessed dude was so angry, he took them in the room, all seven men. And he didn't just beat them down. He didn't just make them naked, uh, uh, bloody. By the time they left, they were naked. They had no clothes on. And so this demon not only overpowered them, he humiliated them. And what's ironic is this clash of cultures... This wasn't people who were trying to use God for their own gain against believers. This was people who were trying to use God for their own gain against a demon who was against God. And, and even the demons are like, no, you're not going to play that game. No, you're not going to exercise authority over me. You might think you can get away with this, but you're not going to get away with it. Gang, there's a lot of us, I'll say it again, I said it before, that are playing this game. And, and, and we're flirting with injury and we're flirting with humiliation because here's the deal. The longer that we continue to use God for our own gain, the longer that we instead try to sit there and say, God, I want to become more like you. And instead we sit there and say, hey, people, I want you to see that I'm more like Jesus. The longer we do that, sooner or later it's going to blow up in our face. And we might not leave, leave physically beaten, bloodied, and naked, but we're going to leave injured and humiliated. Now, in a way that only God can, uh, God used this demon uh, to just reach even more people. It says this in verse 17 through 20. It says, When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In the same way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Uh, go and leave that up for a little bit, if you guys don't mind. Thanks. 
Um, you know what the worst part about getting in a fight is? It's when you lose and everybody else hears about it. I mean, there's like nothing. Some of you guys are like, oh, yeah, I know. I've been there. Uh, I have, too. There's nothing worse than walking back to school and everybody knows that you got beat down. There's nothing worse than walking through your neighborhood and like, oh, yeah, you got beat up last night. It, but these seven brothers, it, it says this. It says, when it became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus. So what happened is, is these seven guys not only got beat down, they, they became like a punchline. I mean, they became the topic of discussion. They could not go to 7-Eleven or Rouse's and walk in there and get their food without someone says, hey, dude, that's the guy that got beat up. Dude, that's the brother, man. They lost. They got overpowered by one guy. Man, they're a bunch of wimps. Uh, but not only were they a punchline, not only were they the center of conversation, they became a cautionary tale to anyone that wanted to use God for their own gain. And because these, these, these men got beat up by a demon, we're told that four things happened. It says, number one, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. See, when people heard about the fact that these seven men tried to use God for their own gain, and a demon took exception to it and beat them up, all of a sudden the name of Jesus got held in high honor. This literally means that people got saved because a demon beat the brakes and the pants off of seven men. People came to know who Jesus Christ was because they're like, you know what? Man, there's something about that God. Uh, the next thing we're told is that many of those who believe, these, these new believers, they now came and they openly confessed what they had done. Because they saw that you don't mess around with God, because you don't play the game, they were overcome with conviction for their sin and they repented of it. But they took it a step farther. They, they went to other people and they confessed their sin to them so their friends and their, their co-workers and their fellow, fellow Christ followers can hold them accountable so they don't fall back into that sin. And, and they did something just as equally amazing. It says a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly when they, I'm sorry, when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So we're told that the only did people get saved, hold God in high honor, not only did people openly confess their sin to one another, there's a group of people who were mixing the two. They were mixing God and they were still mixing sorcery. And they said, you know what? We got to get rid of this. So we're going to take these books and we're going to burn them. But here's the deal. Those books were very expensive. Again, remember, the magic was held in high honor at that time. People really loved that stuff. So these books that had these like different whatever they had in there, uh, they, they were known and people would want to buy them from them. And so they came and they burned them. And scripture says that the sum total of these things was 50,000 drachmas. Now, to put this in context, for the average person of that time, one drachma was one day salary. So if you take into account 50,000 drachmas, these people literally burned 136 plus years of salary. They literally burned their mortgage payments, their retirement plan, and their children's inheritance. And the question we should think, you know, is like, hey, well, why did they do that? I mean, why did they burn these scrolls? Why didn't they just say, hey, I'm no longer going to do sorcery. Let me, con let, me, let me confess that I've done that. You can hold me accountable and not do that anymore. And then sell these books to other people so they can stay financially stable. And the reason why they burned them is because they learned a lesson. They learned that you don't play with God. And they learned that Christ's followers don't benefit from sin and temptation. They eliminate it. And so they went and they sold, I'm sorry, they went and they burned these books instead of selling them. And then in verse 20, it says this, it says that because people's response was so great. Now, I just kind of want to go back real quick. Remember we talked about the fact that, that in this lecture hall of Tyrannus, that everybody in the Asia, the, the, the province of Asia, they had all heard the gospel. 
But now this demon comes and beats these seven men, and all this stuff happens. And in verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So because people are responding to God, because people are getting saved, because people are confessing their sin, because people are getting rid of things that, that are of sin and, and tempting to other people, that now the, the province of Asia Minor is starting to get, it's expanding. Because people are hearing about what's happening there, and so the word of the Lord is spreading widely, and it grew in power. It literally is like they moved from Ephesus, the city, went to the region, and went beyond. It went from the Gulf Coast, and went to Mississippi, and then went through all the nation, because people realized that God is the one true God. And people realized that you don't mess with God. And you know what else people realized? They realized that when people catch a glimpse of how good God is, they change. And, and there's nothing more attractive for somebody to look at somebody else and say, man, I see that you have a changed life because there's something in you that's different. And that person looks at you and says, man, it's the Jesus Christ in me. Because changed lives always change lives. See, gang, Paul lived in, in a world, and, and we live in a world that really contains a, a lot of different clashes of cultures. Primarily, we have three. Those who are for Jesus, those who are against Jesus, and those who try to use Jesus to manipulate others. So here's the deal. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are for Jesus, and you understand as I'm talking about this, you understand that temptation to drift. You get it. I mean, we've all been there. I dealt with it. This, this the temptation to drift to be able to take advantage of, of, of our relationship with Christ and our advantage with other people, but you realize you hate that, you don't want that to be a part of your life, but you, you're fighting that. Keep fighting that fight. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do not let that distract you. Do not let that sin to, tempt, uh, to creep into your life. Don't let that temptation be around you. And just continue to run fast and strong after Jesus Christ and tell other people about who you're running fast and strong after. If you're in this room today and, and you're one of the other cultures and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're here because somebody invited you and you heard we had donuts. <laughs> Anyways, um, and so you're here, and, and you think that, man, you're just here uh, circumstantial. But in your heart of hearts, you're listening to this, and you know something's wrong. But there's something you're holding on to. And so my question for you is, is, is what are you holding on to? And, and is what you're holding on really worth it? Because here, here's the deal. There's a Jesus that loves you. And there's a life that you have not experienced yet that is way better than your life right now without Jesus. And there's a life without Jesus that, that you've had that you cannot even comprehend how amazing it is to not only be a follower of Christ, but to have other followers of Christ around you to do life with. You just have no clue. You think you do, you have no clue. But here's the beauty of it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Christ has already paid the price. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die a death on the cross that he did not deserve because he gave us a life that we do not deserve. And all you have to do is come to a believing knowledge of that. But here's the deal. In order to do that, you need to let go of some things. Because what you're holding on to right now, what you think is super important to you, whatever is keeping you away from Jesus, it's not worth it. Jesus himself said a lot better than I can. He said in Mark chapter 8, 36, it's, that's where it's recorded. He looked at the crowd and he says this. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Gang, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, quit chasing after the wrong things. Because you know what? You might gain the world but you're going to forfeit this, your soul. And there's a gift, and there's a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine, and that by far outweighs anything that you think is valuable above him. Last but not least, if you're here today, 
And maybe you've, you've intentionally or maybe you've kind of drifted into playing the faith game. Maybe you've, you've, you've kind of drifted into the idea of, hey, I'm not here and I don't read scripture and I don't pray to God because I want to become more like Christ. Uh, I do all those things because I want people to think I am like Christ. If, if that's you, then just stop it. You need to repent of that. And, and you need to trust that God is faithful and he'll forgive you. That's the beauty of who God is. But you need to turn and you need to turn the other way. See, could... Could you guys imagine, just real quick, just, just dream with me. Could you imagine what would happen if on the Gulf Coast, who is a lot like the Ephesus Paul spoke to in the synagogue, what would happen if the Gulf Coast became like the Ephesus that happened two years later? Could you imagine what would happen if we just stopped trying to use God and started trying to figure out how we could be used by God? Could you imagine what would happen if we started sitting there saying, you know what, I want to become more like Christ, and I'm going to evaluate those areas of my life that I'm not consistent in, and I'm going to do everything I can to be consistent in those areas because I believe that God has the power and the giftedness he's going to help me through. Could you imagine what would happen to our kids? Could you imagine what would happen to the Gulf Coast? Could you imagine how many people would hold Christ in high honor? They would come to know him. Could you imagine how, how us sharing our sins and, and our temptations with each other and, and ask people to hold us accountable? Could you imagine how that would change people? Could you imagine how we would go home and, and those things that are tempting to us or causing sin in our lives, we literally just go throw them in the fireplace. Could you imagine what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. The whole land would recognize that there's something different about these people that live upon the Gulf Coast. And the whole land would sit there and say, there's something about their changed life that I want to change my life. And the power of God and the power of his word will spread in this region just like it did in that region. Here's the deal, guys. There's nothing different about God's work 2,000 years ago that can happen here in 2020. Absolutely nothing. The same Holy Spirit with the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can do that right here. We've got to respond. We've got to respond. We've got to evaluate our lives. We've got to be humble enough to admit those areas that we're failing in. And we've got to ask God to use us in amazing ways that only he can use us in. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, uh, Lord, I, I just love your word. I, I thank you so much um, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to, to, to pay the penalty for my sin. Uh, a penalty that I deserve to pay. But Father, you're just so good. That, that you put that upon him so that I don't have to pay it. Father, I, I thank you that you are a creative God, that you work in miraculous ways 2,000 years ago and you still do today. You can use sweat rags to heal people. You can even use demons to drive people to come to a relationship with you. But God, today, I, I ask that you use us. Today, I, I ask that you use us in our speech and the things we say and the way we interact on social media. And I pray that, God, you use us to just draw us closer to you and our relationship with you so deep and, and, and just so pure that, God, the people around us will see that there's something different about us. There's something different about our family. There's something different about our neighborhoods. There's something different about our city. And, God, they will come draw to you. And, God, more and more people will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.